Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. On Monday night in Ottawa, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau gathered his cabinet for an unannounced meeting. This was hastily followed by a meeting with all Liberal members of Parliament. By the next morning, the secret was announced to the public. The Liberals and the NDP were entering into a formal partnership. Today, I'm announcing that the Liberal Party has reached an agreement with the new Democratic Party to deliver results for Canadians now. The deal is called a supply and confidence agreement. In exchange for Liberal buy-in for certain policies, like dental care and housing, the NDP has promised to support the Liberal minority government until 2025. They've kind of decided what's going to happen. They've decided what's going to pass and what's not. They've decided what's really important to the two of them. And in some ways, there's a, a question around, like, why are you presuming the will of Parliament for the next two or three years? Laurie Turnbull is an associate professor of political science and the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. We spoke with Laurie on Tuesday about what this agreement means for the government, for the opposition parties, and for Canadian democracy in general. This is The Decibel. Laurie, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So how big of a deal is this announcement? I think that the announcement is more of a continuation of the status quo than it is a shift in power or in the relationship between the Liberals and the NDP. I think this is an acknowledgement of the fact that the NDP are a partner to the government in its policy agenda and have acted as so since the government has been in, in a minority position since 2019. And I think that the agreement gives us some sense of what the policy goals are going to be in the next three years should the agreement last that long. But this doesn't change the balance of power. It just puts a little bit more formality and predictability on a relationship that existed already. So what is the difference then between this deal that's that's been announced and a formal coalition? Because we're hearing that word coalition tossed around a lot today. Yeah. And sometimes people will want to use that word to conjure up a sense of, of something that actually doesn't exist. So a coalition government would be if both parties were represented in cabinet, which would mean both of them were around that decision-making table, both of them were um, sharing memoranda to cabinet and some degree of decision-making power. Both were briefed on all the matters before the government. Like that would be quite a transformation in the relationship that has been existing to date. But what a confidence and supply agreement does is create an agreement between the parties that lays out the issues that they will cooperate on. And it gives the government assurance that the NDP will support them on matters of confidence and supply. And so something like uh, a speech from the throne, if there's a new session of parliament, a budget, something that is really pivotal to what the government has campaigned on and what it wants to do. So essentially the agreement assures the government that the NDP will be on side for those things. But the NDP isn't actually part of the government. So is there anything actually binding about this agreement then? No. So the agreement is a political one rather than a legal one or a constitutional one. 
if either party makes a decision that this is no longer in their interest and they want to step outside of it, there's nothing to bind them to it at all. If the two parties decide to stay in this, it would be because they believe that, you know, it's the right thing for them because the agreement is doing what they wanted to do. And, you know, because they're kind of getting out of it what they wanted. But if they were to step out of it, because they came to whatever conclusion that politically they're better off outside of it. And that could happen, right? A lot of the questions that Prime Minister Trudeau and Mr. Singh got today were around the potential conditions that could invite a reconsideration of the agreement. What would make you step outside of this? And so that could be all kinds of things. Three years is a long time. It's certainly possible that this would unravel before the 2025 day. And even in British Columbia, for instance, when there was a similar agreement struck in 2017, the two parties said, yep, we're in this for four years. And in 2020, the premier decided to go to election early. And so, you know, there was no cost to that apart from potentially political, but he got a majority government in that election. And so it paid off for him. So you just mentioned the the British Columbia example there. And, and that's interesting because this is probably one of the few examples of the situation in recent years. Why is this such a rare thing in Canadian politics? A confidence and supply agreement is rare, I think, because in some ways you don't really need it. This sort of agreement, to the extent that it has any political effect, could have the effect of sort of putting a parameter around what the parties are going to pursue. And, you know, if it, this, these are the things that the parties have decided are particularly important for the coming years, whether it's, you know, dental care, pharma care, housing, these sorts of things. And so there's an expectation that there will be progress on those things. And sometimes you know, a party doesn't really want to bind itself, even if politically. And there can be costs if some of your voters, for instance, don't like the other party and don't actually see a lot of value in a partnership that has a bit more expectation on it than a simple one-off support us if you want kind of thing. And so some voters will actually be quite happy with this and some voters won't. Prime Minister Trudeau, when when he was uh, speaking to the media about this, he said that his government is doing this to to bring stability to an, an unstable period of time uh, with increased political polarization. What this means is that during this uncertain time, the government can function with predictability and stability, present and implement budgets, and get things done for Canadians. If we take that explanation at face value... How would this agreement help to reduce the the political tensions that we see today? I would take issue with the suggestion that the relationship itself had any political instability. I think that the Liberals and the NDP are pretty close on a lot of things, including some big issues that are actually in provincial jurisdiction. And so they provide pretty logical partners for one another to want to make progress on things like pharmacare, like dental care, like housing. Like that's not a big stretch. I think with respect to the instability in the world... I think that it does help the prime minister and the liberals to claim authority in the House of Commons because they are a minority, even though we sometimes forget that. They are a minority government and they are trying to do some pretty fundamental things, right, including um, carve out a role for Canada in global security and in a response to the war in Ukraine. And so for a prime minister to be doing those things and after a pretty rough period after the last election, when he didn't get his majority and his popularity took a big hit in his handling of the trucker convoy, it's not a bad thing for him to show I am absolutely the MP with the confidence of the House and I have 
enough support behind me to be able to get done the things I want to get done, including pass a budget in the spring and move forward on my policy agenda. So I think for even though I don't see the the relationship between the two parties as being unstable, I think there is a stabilizing effect for the prime minister to say, I have security and predictability about the things I want to do in the coming year, two years, and even three years if it lasts that long. But what's the point of formalizing this agreement then? If if the NDP was probably going to help prop up the Liberals on important votes anyways, why do they need to formalize it in this way? I agree with that question. I, I don't think they did need to formalize it, to be perfectly honest. I think that they could have left things the way they were. And I'm not sure that it wouldn't have been better for the NDP to have left it. Because now... It almost has the feel that the prime minister and the NDP leader and people around them made a decision about what was important to the two parties and how we would keep this, this partnership working for the next potentially up to three years. We are getting help for people who that need their teeth fixed. We're getting help for people that need to buy their medication and can't afford to. We're getting help to people that need to find a home to call their own and can't afford one. We're getting helped. The caucuses of the two parties approved this agreement, but this was not a grassroots exercise where the two parties were coming together and saying, let's let's work this out, right? Like this was a kind of leadership level agreement that now has the effect and has the feel that they've kind of decided what's going to happen. They've decided what's going to pass and what's not. They've decided what's really important to the two of them. And in some ways, there's a, a question around, like, why are you presuming the will of parliament for the next two or three years? Well, they're doing that because we're a totally disciplined system and parties follow their leaders and there's not a huge likelihood that the parties are going to vote against what their leaders want to do. But it has this sort of fait accompli feel to it, which is a little boring, to be honest. I mean, it's great, you know, great if you want these things that are going to come. Like if if you believe that the direction of this agreement, that this direction of this partnership is the right thing, then it's possible you, you don't care, right? Like if you want your dental care and you think this is how I'm going to get it. I don't care if caucuses agree with it. I don't care if parliament has less of a role to play. That's fine. That's completely fine. But I think the reasons for, for signing the agreement are political rather than legal, rather than constitutional, and rather than related to stability in any policy sense, to be honest. I don't think it was likely at all that the liberals were going to lose power anytime soon. So in this arrangement, obviously the Liberals benefit because they're securing power for a few more years. Why would the NDP choose to enter into this agreement, though? So I think the, the NDP is, is in a particular kind of challenge where in 2011, they were the official opposition, right? Like they reached a point of success that I think many people didn't think they would ever reach. They were, you know, the Queen's loyal opposition. Like, that was a completely different world for the NDP. And then they lost that world. You know, when the Liberals regrouped under Trudeau, Trudeau formed a government in 2015. That was a different world again for the NDP. And in the last three federal elections, they have not managed to hit 20% of the popular vote. Despite the fact that many of the issues that the NDP put up front as being their focal issues, you know, like housing, like dental care, like pharmacare, are top of mind for many Canadians, but the NDP doesn't seem to be able to get any, you know, there's no drag for them in the, in the way that they want, right? And so they need to be able to 
take some sort of different tactic that allows them to build their presence in the House of Commons. And I think, frankly, Jagmeet Singh's leadership depends on it. And so will this deal with the Liberals give Jagmeet Singh and the, the NDP broadly a way to say, we push the government on dental care. You have dental care because of us. We have a track record. We got something. You know, we extracted something in exchange for our support. And then if they take that to the ballot box, will that yield more votes for them? On the other hand, they run the risk of looking like the government's junior partner. And when these deals are negotiated, like things that are provincial jurisdiction and the prime minister is going around the country shaking hands with premiers saying, we did a deal in, you know, in this province on pharmacare or whatever the case may be, Jagmeet Singh is not going to be in those photo ops. These are not going to be his moments, right? And so is he going to be able to find a way to put these things in the win column for himself, all the while as the liberal government is posting these things as wins for them? That's really interesting. So I'm curious what your read on the situation is then, Laurie. Do you think that this move will make the NDP more or, or less relevant with progressive voters? To be honest, uh, I think it's too early to tell. And I think it's a significant risk on their part. Like it could get a little sticky. And to the extent that the conservatives really decide that they are going to you know, push on this and in ways that that push on the parliamentary accountability side, instead of going out and yelling about a back backroom socialism and coalition, like, no, that like, it's not a coalition. Get over it. What, what's actually going on here? And I think that there are vulnerabilities here that the conservatives could certainly press on. And so if possible, it's not necessarily going to be the case that the NDP come, come out of this a winner, right? Like it's possible they're going to really struggle to, again, like put these things in the win column for themselves. And if they don't show themselves to be a real force to be reckoned with in the House, as opposed to the thing that kind of gave the Liberals the majority they didn't get themselves, it's going to be harder, I think, for them to make that argument. So let's talk about the Conservatives then here, because we saw interim Conservative leader Candace Bergen come out very strongly against this announcement, saying some pretty inflammatory things. 82 percent of voters did not vote for a liberal NDP government, including millions of liberal voters. These Canadians woke up this morning to the fact that they have been hoodwinked and they've been deceived by their prime minister. Now, let me be How does this affect the Conservatives politically, uh, particularly, of course, because they are in the middle of a leadership race right now? It really puts a lot of pressure, I think, on the Conservatives to fulfill that parliamentary scrutiny and parliamentary accountability role given the fact that there's now some kind of more formalized cooperation between the Liberals and the NDP in the event that there's any question about the government's integrity, for example, about its compliance with ethics rules, which has been an issue for this government a couple of times, the Conservatives will now be all the more eager to lump the NDP in that pile and say, you can't, you know, you can't trust the NDP to hold the government to account because clearly they think the government's doing just great. You need to count on the Conservatives for that. It also gives them an opportunity to kind of poke back at the conservative leadership race and say, you know, here are some people who really want to be prime minister. And we're letting you know that that office is not going to be vacant before 2025. I think a lot of that is going to be, depend on the tone that the new leader takes. We would hear a very different narrative and we'll see a very different style if somebody like Jean Charest wins as opposed to someone like Pierre Polyev. What are the drawbacks then to giving the liberals a guarantee of power in, in a minority government situation like this? There is, okay, so there's some people who are suggesting that this is not legitimate, right? That this is an inappropriate uh, sort of creation of a majority government where there was none before. 
And I just want to say that is not true. There, there is nothing wrong at all. There is nothing illegitimate about two parties deciding they're going to create an agreement on things that they want to work on together. Any, any parties can do that. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with that. So as far as this being any kind of a threat to democracy by virtue of the fact that there's an agreement at all, I disagree. But uh, what, what's going to, again, it's going to be in the details of things, right? Like if this agreement means that the parties are less toxic, less prone to personal attacks, more aware of the fact that parties don't have to exist in a zero-sum kind of universe, and they actually can identify things that they agree on and work on the things that they agree on, and the sky's not going to fall if they happen. If those sorts of things occur, I think that this could actually be transformative for Canadian democracy. However, those are old habits that are going to die hard. And are we going to see that? Are we going to see partisans act differently? Are we going to see the partisanship between them and the conservatives get even worse? Is this going to be enough to really transform the kind of toxic rhetoric and toxic environment that the prime minister has referred to himself? Is this a sign that members are taking any more responsibility on that front? Because if yes, this could be really great for democracy. Or is this, this just political leaders deciding that they're going to do the deal up front and parliament's a lot less important? It could go either way, the former being great for democracy and the latter being a disaster. But I think it's too early to tell. Do you think it's likely that this agreement will last until 2025? When it comes to 2025, again, I think a lot is going to depend on whether the liberals are able to resist the temptation for an earlier election call if it really looks like it's to their vantage point. And I think a lot of that is going to depend on the outcome of the conservative race. But say, for instance, we saw a scenario where the prime minister, like this, this would be, I think, the thing that would, that would have to put pressure on an agreement like this. If we saw the liberals change their leader any time in the next year and a half, it would be very difficult for the prime minister, the new prime minister, to go any more than six to eight months without going to the people. That's very difficult for someone to, to step into the prime minister's chair and say, you know, whether it's Christian Freeland or whoever, there would be, I think, a pressure on that person to go to the people that would outweigh the pressure to abide this agreement. Because to have a prime minister be in that position without a general election, that will curdle at a quicker rate than this agreement will. Lori, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you too. This was really fun. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our intern is Rose Danen. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.